0: What is up, my dudes? Welcome back to Olympia Oddities, or if you're new here and you've never listened to me before, welcome to Olympia Oddities. I'm Trista. I'm gonna be your navigator on the cryptid tour. Okay, I'm immediately regretting committing to that bit. Um, Well, I didn't really commit because I tapped out. Uh, Anyways, I'm Trista. I don't know why I'm choosing to reintroduce myself. I got some new listeners, so I guess this is our introduction. Hi, nice to meet you. Here's an awkward handshake. I give really soft flimsy ones, dead fish ones. Um. Uh, pre-show notes. I don't really have any other than my phone's speaker was all jacked up this week. I don't know why. I thought that I got water in it maybe, and then I thought maybe I like blew it out from rocking out on it too hard. Um, but it just like resolved itself. So I'm hoping that it will be okay for this episode. I can get a new phone. I just- that's a lot of phone calls and, like, I gotta fill out a form and I'm gonna have to, like, wait and then I gotta, like, uh, set up the new phone and it's just, like, that's too much right now, you know what I mean? I don't know. I'm a very, like, lazy and impatient person and I just want a new phone instantly, but I can't make that happen. But anyways, enough about my personal life. (laughs) Today, I'm gonna tell you the story of the warehouser Kidnapping. For those not in the know, Weyerhaeuser Company is one of the world's largest private owners of timberlands. They currently own or control about 12.4 million acres of timber in the United States and 14 million in Canada. So they own quite a bit of trees. Uh, They also manufacture wood products and are a real estate investment trust. They were founded in 1904 by Frederick Weyerhaeuser after he moved to the Pacific Northwest area after running a successful lumber company based near the Mississippi River. And now that we've got that kind of boring stuff out of the way, let's get into the good stuff. On May 24th, 1935, nine-year-old George Weyerhaeuser was supposed to meet his family's chauffeur at their usual spot so he could be driven home with his sister, Anne, to eat lunch at home. This was their typical routine, and they would meet at the Anne Wright Seminary each day. However, this wasn't a typical day because George had been released from school a little early this day. He waited for about 15 to 20 minutes and the driver still didn't show up. He decided that he would just walk home. George would never arrive at home. The distraught Warehouser family contacted the police. That evening, a special delivery letter arrived at the family's mansion. The letter demanded $200,000 in unmarked 10, 20, and $5 bills in exchange for George. George's signature was written across the envelope. The family notified the police and the police notified the FBI, and they took out a personal advertisement in the Seattle Times to let the kidnappers know that they had received the letter and they agreed to comply with their demands. Another letter was received on May 25th. This one instructed George's father, um, JP Warehouser, to go to the Ambassador Hotel in Seattle and await further instruction. Also included in the letter was a note from George claiming that he was safe. At 10 that night, a taxicab driver delivered a letter to George's father at the hotel. This letter directed him to drive to a specific location. When he arrived, he found sticks driven into the ground with a white cloth attached, and a message directing him to another stick and cloth combo down the road. He found the second marker, but he didn't find any message with it. He waited two hours before returning back to the Ambassador Hotel. And this is kind of the first clue that maybe the kidnappers doing this aren't so great at their jobs of being kidnappers on the morning of may 30th an anonymous caller called jp and berated him for not following the given instruction jp explained that he had tried to cooperate but he had been unable to find their second message at 9 45 that night the phone rang again this time it was a man with a european accent telling jp to go to an address where he would find a tin can with a note stuffed inside He went to the location, he found the can and the note, and set off to the next location he was given. He went to several locations following the same sort of pattern of finding a note and then heading off to the next location, finding a note, heading off, with no sign of George. Finally, on a dirt road off of a highway, he found a note telling him to sit for five minutes with his car's interior dome light on, then head to another white sign on the road. He did this and found a note telling him to leave his car and to start walking his way back to Seattle. Which is where I would have been like, sorry, son, not walking all the way back to Seattle. Um, If the ransom money was exactly as they asked, George would be released within 30 hours. JP walked about 100 yards when he heard a sound. As he turned around, he saw a man dash to the car, get in, and drive away with the ransom money. George Weyerhaeuser was released by a shack in Issaquah, Washington on the morning of June 1st. Once reunited with his family, George revealed the story of what had happened to him. On his walk home, he had left Anne Wright Seminary and passed by some tennis courts. As he stepped onto Borough Road, he noticed two men sitting in a green 1927 Buick sedan. The passenger, a man about 40 years old with brown hair and a mustache, got out and approached George, asking for directions. He then snatched George and put him into the backseat of the car, throwing a blanket over him. He said they drove for about an hour, and he could hear the two men talking in whispers during the drive. They pulled over to the side of the road and stopped the car. They removed the blanket covering him and handed him an envelope, instructing him to write his name on it, like the envelope that his family got. George was then blindfolded and carried ten or twelve steps. He recalled hearing the sound of rushing water and thought that the man must have been wading through a creek. Once on the other side of the stream, he was put down on the ground and led by hand for about a half mile. George recalls there being bushes and trees that he felt brush against him and that the ground was very uneven. They finally stopped near a large log with a large hole dug in the ground near it. The man who had been leading George by hand put him inside of it. George estimated the hole to be about four feet. They chained his right wrist and leg and then placed a large wooden board over the hole, completely covering it. The men took took turns guarding him until about ten that night until one of them became worried that the police would find the hole. So, they carried George back to the car and put him in the trunk. This poor kid. He just goes through so much in this. So, he's back in the trunk. They drove around for about another hour. Once they stopped, he was taken out of the car and led into the woods once again. George watched as his kidnappers dug yet another hole. Along with a seat from the car and two blankets, George was put into the hole. The kidnappers covered the top with tar paper. The next day, May 26th, the two men, now accompanied by a woman, took George out of the hole and into another car's trunk. Seriously, this poor kid. They then drove the Ford to Idaho. They passed through Blanchard, following the highway before turning onto a more secluded road. George was taken from the car and handcuffed to a tree where he was guarded until nightfall. The kidnappers then transported him to a house where he was put into a large closet outfitted with a mattress, two chairs, and a small white table that evening he was told that they would be leaving the house he noticed a pocket watch on the table said it was 5:55 the two men walked upstairs and george theoretically could have used this as an opportunity to escape but they had told him that he was going home soon so he just didn't try and this kid like it's so like remarkable that he was able to like stay cool and like stay alive in the situation so once again Poor George is put back into the trunk of yet another car and taken to a shack near Issaquah, Washington. At 3.30 the next morning, he was told that his father would come get him and his captors set him free. George wandered to a nearby farmhouse where he told the family living there what had happened and who he was. The family took him in, fed and bathed him, and then drove him to Tacoma to reunite with his family. With George safely back at home, serial numbers from the ransom money were given to the FBI. Lists of these numbers were then sent to all the banks, hotels, and railway companies in the area. On June 2nd, the day after George was released, one of the $20 bills was used to buy a train ticket from Huntington, Oregon, to Salt Lake City, Utah. Investigators uncovered that the ticket had been purchased by Harmon Metz-Whaley, age 23. Shortly after this, more of the ransom bills started to be used in discount stores in the Salt Lake area, all the stores in this area were given their own list of the serial numbers for the ransom bills. On June 8th, a police detective stationed at a Wool- Woolworths store was notified by a cashier that a woman u- had used a bill matching one of the ransom bill's serial numbers at their store. The detective took the woman to the FBI office in Salt Lake City. They discovered that her name was Margaret E. Whaley, wife of Harmon Whaley. In her wallet, another bill matching the serial numbers was found. She told a number of conflicting stories, but investigators were eventually able to obtain a correct home address from her. Later that day, Harmon Whaley was arrested at his home. He initially denied having any connection with the kidnapping, but eventually began to confess. He confessed that he and William Daynard, who he had met in the Idaho State Penitentiary, had kidnapped the boy. He claimed that William was the brains of the operation, if there were any, He added that his wife, Margaret, had no knowledge of the kidnapping until their arrival in Spokane. She had been at the hideout house and helped them negotiate the ransom. Approximately 3700 of the ransom money was found to have been burned in the Whaley stove. The ashes were sent to the FBI lab in Washington, D.C., where it was determined that a sufficient number of the bills remained to positively identify them. So it was a match. Whaley claimed that he and Dainard planned to split the money evenly, but that Dainard had cheated him out of $5,000. After further questioning, Whaley said that he bought a Ford Roadster, which he registered as Herman Von Metz, when he arrived in Salt Lake City. Under a clump of trees or bushes, he had buried $90,000, which special agents recovered on June 11th. Physical evidence found at the hideout, the holes, and the kidnapper's home was inspected by investigators. Fingerprint identification positively linked the Whaley's and Daynard to the shack where the ransom had been divided. Also, Harmon Whaley's fingerprints appeared on the cans, in which notes for Mr. Warehouser had been placed, and a fingerprint identified as Margaret's was found at the hideout. Agents learned that Whaley was supposed to meet with Daynard at the home of Ma- uh, Margaret's parents, and they set off to the house. When they arrived, Margaret's grandfather confirmed that a man matching Daynard's description had shown up at the house asking for the Whaley's. The grandfather had told them that they would stopped by to pick up a suitcase, but they had been arrested in Salt Lake. He said that the man shouted, My God, did they get everything that they had before getting in his car and driving off? So Daynard is a man truly about his money. He's got his- My mind on my money, my money on my mind. I just butchered that so hard, please don't judge me. Daynard took off to Butte, Montana, and investigators lost track of him for a while, fearing that he may have fled the country. On May 16th, they finally tracked him down. Employees of two different banks in the Los Angeles, California area reported that a man had come in and exchanged some altered bills. Surveillance began at the address that had been given in the bank information. On the morning of May 7th, special agents assigned to the FBI's field office were instructed to search that neighborhood. Two agents found a Ford bearing their license plate number in a parking lot enclosed by wire fence. Later, a man entered the car and attempted to start it. When it failed to start, he got out of the car and lifted the hood. Agents approached the man who they identified as Daynard. He uh, was arrested without any resistance. At the time of his arrest, agents recovered $37,000 in ransom money and bills that Daynard admitted that he had received in exchange for ransom money. Special agents also recovered $14,000 in $100 bills that Daynard had buried in Utah. Guys and other paraphernalia used to change serial numbers on currency were found in the garage of his Los Angeles, California home. On June 19th, 1935, a federal grand jury in Tacoma, Washington returned an indictment charging William Daynard, Harmon Whaley, and Margaret Whaley with kidnapping and conspiracy to kidnap. Harmon Whaley entered a plea of guilty on June 21st, 1935, and was sentenced to serve concurrent prison terms of 45 years on a charge of kidnapping and two years on a charge of conspiring to kidnap. He was sent to prison at McNeil Island. And if that kind of sounds familiar, it's because it's one of the prisons that Charles Manson did time at, and probably a future episode topic for me. He was later transferred to Alcatraz. So that man had quite a list of prisons that he went to. On June 22nd, Margaret Whaley pleaded, gu- pleaded not guilty to both charges. She was brought to trial in the United States District Court um, in Tacoma on July 5th. Four days later, she was sentenced to serve two concurrent 20-year terms in the United States detention farm in Milan, Michigan. Daynard was transferred to Tacoma, where he entered a guilty plea. Um, he was sentenced to serve two concurrent 60-year prison terms for kidnapping and conspiring to kidnap, That same day, he was sent to the Federal McNeil Island Penitentiary in Washington. He was transferred to Leavenworth Penitentiary in Kansas, where prison authorities determined him to be insane, and he was moved to a hospital. And now, for an unbelievably happy ending. George grew up and became chairman of the board for the Weyerhaeuser Company. Whaley wrote to George from prison several times, apologizing for his actions. When he was released on June 3rd, uh, 1963, at age 52, George Warehouser found a job for Whaley at one of his organ plants. So the kid grew up, became Big Boss Man, and gave his kidnapper a job! What?! Like, when I was researching this, I saw that, and I was like, oh my god, I need to tell everyone about this. Um. So that's the story of the Warehouser kidnapping, a true crime story with a happy ending for once. Thanks for listening to another episode of Olympia Oddities, Until next time.